It's always fun to start the show with some letters, and this one comes from uh, Publishers Clearinghouse. Apparently, I've won some money. Well, we'll save that one for later. This one comes from Wendell in Montreal. She writes, Dear Alex, is your new YA book, Malraux and the Midnight Organ Fight, a New York Times bestseller yet? Good question, Wendell. Uh, And the simple answer is no. Uh, It's not a New York Times bestseller yet. At this point, I'd settle for a bestseller in Albany. But listen, it still can happen. All you have to do is buy it, rate it on Goodreads, tell all your friends, and then it's in the hands of the universe. And if the universe likes a book about two teenage detectives trying to solve a series of murders one summer in San Francisco, well, then I think we have a bestseller on our hands. The book has thrash metal, ninjas in suits, Russians wearing crow's masks and swinging cleavers, organ removal, cars on fire, cars not on fire, cars on fire that were formerly not on fire, taekwondo, and somehow, uh, this is true, there's a love story in there. Order Malraux from your local indie bookseller, buy it for your smart, dark, and slightly disaffected teenager, then read it after them. Uh, The book is fast and fun and twisted, which is exactly how all of my ex-girlfriends describe me. Both of them, by the way. All right, let's get to the show. I'm Alex Crean, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. From his new album, The Ritual Begins at Sundown, that is the music of my guest today on the program, Robbie Krieger. Let me tell you a little bit about Robbie Krieger. Actually, it feels really stupid uh, to do this introduction because Robbie Krieger uh, is so cemented into rock and roll history that to introduce him to you feels, well, it feels kind of redundant. If you don't know what I'm talking about... Here's some of his work with the band he used to be in. You know that it would be untrue. You know that I would be a liar. If I was to say to you, girl, we couldn't get much higher. Come on, baby, light my fire. Come on, baby, light my fire. Try to set the night on fire. That's right. Robbie Krieger was the guitarist for The Doors, and that's a little number he wrote called Light My Fire. Now, I don't need to tell you this, but The Doors are titans of rock and roll history, and the L.A.-born Krieger is one of the greatest guitar players of all time. Krieger was a pretty cool kid growing up. He was playing flamenco guitar, he was listening to Wes Montgomery and Larry Carlton, and he could pretty much do it all before he was 20. Folk, jazz, blues, he even played in a jug band. Although he's best known for his truly riveting work with The Doors, Krieger's seven solo albums really showcase his dexterity as a player. His work is inventive, deft, experimental, and classic. The guy is a real virtuoso. 
His phrasing, his innovations, and his freedom as a player make you realize that Krieger works from an expansive canvas. His new album, The Ritual Begins at Sundown, makes that abundantly clear. Produced by Arthur Barrow, who played bass for Frank Zappa, the instrumental album has a Zappa cover, a new reading of The Doors' Yes, the River Knows, and eight other tracks that showcase Krieger's mastery and finesse. This is one of those moments where I got to sit down with a legend, and believe me, I know that Robbie's been interviewed to death. So I do my best here to find new ways to approach him in an attempt to get you to hear things about him maybe you haven't heard. Am I successful? Well, you tell me. What I can tell you is he's a very nice guy, and I really enjoyed the chat. I hope you do too. This is me and Robbie Krieger having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. I think we're going to start doing some online concerts. Yeah, how do you feel about that? No, it's okay with me. Um, in fact, I, I think it's kind of cool. I won't have to sign autographs or have to do selfies. <laughs> <laughs> it takes that completely out of the equation. Right. God. That's uh, the most annoying part of doing shows. Yeah, that must get tiresome. Yeah, it does. Um, but I was it's a good, good problem to have. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was watching uh, John Fogarty just posted a video of himself on his farm playing acoustic songs with his dog, and I thought that doesn't look so bad. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, where's his farm? I don't know. I think I feel like he's here in Northern California, but I could be wrong. I, I, I'm not really sure. Tell me a little bit about how long this record was germinating. Um, how long were you thinking about it before you started to record it? Well, um, you know, Arthur Barrow and I, uh, we uh, we just write songs together as a matter of uh, course, so, you know, a lot of the time. But, you know, the last couple albums I've put out, solo albums, never really did that much, you know, so I just figured, uh, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, do this anymore especially when people don't pay for records anymore so uh, it was about that was about uh, three or four years after my last album and I ended up buying a studio and uh, for some reason <laughs> it's a great time to buy a studio when the business <laughs> has gone to shit right, right. But, uh, you know I wanted to have a place and and it's kind of cool to have a place to record or rehearse or whatever. So anyway, um, so we started getting more serious about recording again. And uh, just took forever, but uh, finally finally got something uh, I like, you know, good enough to put out. Were you, were you really thinking like, oh, I'm not going to do this anymore? Were you pretty serious about that? Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, not, not quit music, but... Yeah, I was thinking, that why put albums out? You know, it's just, uh, you know, nobody wants to hear me play anything but anyway. And, uh, you know, it's uh, just tough to get motivated to uh, to make an album when, when, you know, you end up selling 2,000 
But then again, you know, I figured, what the hell, you know, might get lucky and somebody will buy it. Right. 2003. (laughs) (laughs) I also imagine it would be frustrating because if you put a record out, you sequence it in a way that you think about it as like a movement. And so I imagine people listening to it out of order. You know, the whole notion of the album has been sort of subverted by technology. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, and that's why, uh, you know, we're going to do a vinyl. Uh, and that's, I was waiting for somebody that wanted to actually do vinyl. And uh, these guys at Mascot like to do that. I'm curious. I, I was chatting with um with Steve Hackett a couple of months ago, and he was telling me how, I mean, the guy practices every day, plays every day, and that, that didn't surprise me. Um, and I was wondering for you what your daily your daily routine is. Do you play every day? Do you practice every day? Uh, not every day. You know, I get into jags uh, where I will do it every day, um, you know, especially if I have a, a gig coming up or something. But... Uh, no, I don't do it anymore uh, every day, especially since my my left uh, thumb and little finger are not working that good uh, for the past couple of years. But I've been getting these uh, these new uh, shots, the injection thing. It's called PRP. You heard about that? Yeah, is that where they, the cartilage? It sort of goes between the cartilage. Well, it's uh, they take your blood and they spin it and they get the platelets and then they inject it back into the joints. And uh, it really has uh, helped. Before that was happening, how did that change your playing? I mean, I imagine that had made it compromised in some way. Yeah, I mean, you know, you find ways around it, but it's just annoying and, and it, you know, your hand hurts every after you play. It's, uh, you know, one of the things that happens when you get to my age. Yeah, and and also you've been playing for so long that it's like repetitive movement using the same thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, and I play golf, so that doesn't help either. <laughs> no, no. I, I imagine in golf, if one finger goes weird, you're going to start hooking to the right. <laughs> well, I mean, when you you know when you're hitting it off the ground, a lot of times you you bang it, the club into the ground too hard, and it just jars your whole hand. You know. But I'm addicted to the game, so I have to keep playing. Yeah, yeah. Do you did you ever feel artistic pressure? Like if you if you haven't played guitar in a couple of days, do do you walk by your guitars and you're like, I'll get to you? But I mean, do you feel a kind of pressure on yourself? No, no. I'm, I I never I would never practice unless I wanted to, unless uh, you know, because it's fun. I, I do it because it's fun, not because I need to. When you were a kid, were you the kind of guy who would sit in your room and and practice? Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I I I didn't actually start playing till I was like fourteen, so I was kind of a late start. But uh, I got good pretty quick, and and then I I really started playing flamenco. That was the first kind of stuff I played. Uh, took lessons. And uh, you know, practiced every day. But then after, uh, and, I, and I would play folk music, you know, like Bob Dylan kind of stuff. Um, and uh, but all nylon, you know, nylon string stuff. Uh. 
And then one day I saw Chuck Berry play, and that was it. I went and bought an electric guitar. <laughs> that, that did it. <laughs> yeah, because that was when he was really good. I mean, he he wasn't just doing the pickup band thing. You know, he had Johnny Johnson, all those guys. And uh, I saw him play at San Monica Civic, and he was just fucking amazing. How? Just out of curiosity, how was Dylan as a guitar? Is he a pretty good player? Yeah, definitely, definitely for that style. Um, you know, once he started with the electric stuff, then he let you know the other guys play more or less. But when he was just playing him and his voice and the guitar, he he had some great uh, picking technique, finger picking, and. Uh, him and and you know who else was really good was Joan Baez. I've I've seen both of them play uh, live many times uh, back then, and uh, and they were both really good. Neither get mentioned very often as being great players, which I think is is pretty unfair. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there were better at that style, you know, back then, but. Uh, I, I don't know who they were. Uh, did you read Bob Dylan's book? I did, yeah. yeah. He talked about some guy, Tom, somebody that was really good. and I went and listened to him, but I didn't think he was any better than Dylan. I'm a writer, so when I listen to music, I always hear lyrics first. Are you, as a guitarist, do you hear guitar before anything else? Yeah. Well, I mean, I hear the music before the words, for sure. You know, yeah. There's still plenty of songs that I still don't know what the words are. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like if you go see a band live, would you 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 look at the guitar player first? Is that what the first place you would look? Uh, pretty much, yeah, yeah. Are you a as a golfer? I'm sure you're competitive with yourself. Are you competitive musically as well? Did you look around and see players and go, "Oh, that guy's good. I got to up my game." Did you think like that? <laughs> Oh, a little bit, you know, not at first. Um, you know, when I f- started playing electric, um, you know, I didn't, uh, you know, I, I, I loved Chuck Berry and I loved Mike Bloomfield. And, you know, I just never thought I'd be that good, you know, so I, I just kind of did my own thing. So I, I really never tried to copy anybody because I didn't think I was good enough. <laughs> So that might have been a good thing because it made me have my own style. Did you ever cross train on other instruments? I mean, I don't know if you if you play other instruments. I'm sure you do, but do you have um, you done? Just bass. I play bass. You know, um, not very good on keyboards. Uh, I played trumpet for a while when I was uh, younger, but uh, kind of gave that up. A lot of player, a lot of people who listen to the show are young musicians. I mean, would you recommend that you take on more than one instrument? Well, I think people are suited for one instrument more than, you know, I mean, some people can play all different instruments, like, uh, you know, Prince or somebody like that. Right. Stevie Wonder. But I think most of us are, have an affinity for one instrument. Um and, you know, I had a piano at my house uh, when I was growing up, but never really, you know, didn't really get into it. 
you know, I, I, I played a few things, but uh, my mom was pretty good. But uh, the first time I picked up a guitar, I just knew that that was what I liked, you know. My friend had one that lived up the street. And uh, I would always use any excuse to go over there and <laughs> play his guitar. So it just felt right to yeah. you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, see, some people are more percussion-oriented, which is, uh, you know, keyboards or, or drums. And then other people are more melodic, uh, which is more guitar or uh, or brass. Yeah, there's, and it's one of the things you can't, it's like liking a food and not liking another food. You can't really explain why it feels good and or why it doesn't. Right, right, exactly. It might have something to do with past lifetimes or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who knows? I believe um, that. Yeah, I mean, there's some kids you see on the internet, like four-year-old kids who are like amazing uh, yeah, guitar or keyboards. This friend of mine, uh, Ray Gorin, he's 16, 17 now, but when he was 13, he was playing with Buddy Guy and all this stuff. And he told me when he was four years old, he was playing Bach and Mozart, shit like that on the piano. <laughs> uh, how, does, how do you explain that? <laughs> I mean, how do you explain Mozart? <laughs> and he wanted to play Bartok. He told his piano teacher he wanted to play Bartok. And the teacher says, no, no, you're not old enough. You can't do that. You know. So the next week, the kid starts playing Bartok. <laughs> well yeah i mean I, it's funny like you think about i don't know how much access we have to our, you know past life experience but you can certainly look into your dna i mean i imagine that you said your mom played piano there must have been music in your dna yeah it uh, could be although i don't think my grandparents played but uh yeah who knows when I was uh, 10 years old, Robbie, I started, I took a tape recorder, uh, you know, I'm almost 58. So I took a tape recorder in the early eighties up to my room and I started doing, I started hosting a radio show uh, just organically out of nowhere. And <laughs> I don't know why I did it. Right. I mean, I, I was the first podcaster in 1981, but um, I <laughs> found out that my, I'm Jewish and, and my back in world war one, I, I had a, um, an, a great, great uncle who was a DJ. And so, you know, I didn't even know that until years later. Um, he was, you know, in Poland or something like that. So literally, I, I feel like I was hardwired to be doing this. Yeah. Um, you know? That's cool. I believe that, yeah. Yeah, I, I believe it too. All right, so you've got you've to explain Frank Zappa to me because I, um, I've been trying for, to get into him. Um, <laughs> he's one of my, my blind spots. And I'm, I know that you do a song on the record. Tell me a little bit about uh, I'm a beginner with Frank Zappa, so give me give me the give me the uh, <laughs> the way in. Well, you know, back in when we were playing at the whiskey and stuff, um, he had this band called the Mothers of Invention, right? And you know, they were I never liked them. You know, they were like kind of a, a comedy act almost. You know, but uh, but then later, you know, Zappa himself was. Uh, very uh, musical when he was young. He, uh, I don't know if you read anything about him, but he uh, he would write symphonies and stuff when he was like eight years old. 
So, uh, you know, he, but I guess he was just kind of amusing, uh, using music to, uh, to be uh, funny or something at that time. So anyway, he, uh, but as time went on, he, he started getting these really amazing musicians, uh, in his band, like, you know, George Duke and, uh, all these guys. And, uh, you know, he'd still do the silly words and stuff, and that always turned me off, you know, so I never really got into him. But my buddy Arthur, Arthur Barrow, who, you know, co-wrote uh, my last couple of albums with me, um, he was a big Zappa fan. And when he came out from Texas uh, to to L.A., he came out here hoping to join Frank Bank and Zappa's band. And somehow he did and became, he actually became the... Uh, music master of his band that they called him the clone master and so, so he would rehearse the band and then for like three hours he'd be rehearsing the band and get everything perfect then frank would come in and change everything you know so but anyway it's really more arthur barrow's deal with the zappa and um, so a lot of the guys that ended up on the album were uh, ex-Zappa guys. But you were not all the way on board with Zappa's output? No, not really. I mean, I I, uh, I never really uh, was into him that much. I mean, I respected him as a, as a musician, you know, especially in his later stuff. But uh, uh, I just, I don't know, I never could quite get into his whole theory of music. Uh, what do you think his theory was? Like disruption? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I think he he just liked to he liked to be far out, just to be far out. That's what I always thought. You know, his uh, the music it never it never really had a groove to it. Um, it was just all crazy stuff that nobody else would ever think of writing. You know, which is cool. You know, I mean, it's different, but. Uh, I, I, I never had a feel for me, you know what I mean? I never, never, yeah. never found a groove that much, you know. That's always been my issue too. What about Captain Beefheart? Did you have the same issue there? Um, a little bit. He, he, I liked him more. Uh, we, we did quite a few gigs with him actually, <laughs> and uh, he was a funny guy. <laughs> he, used, he used to be on acid all the time. <laughs> And he was just, I remember one time we we come back from a gig uh, from uh, Denver and uh, we we're on the airplane and, and he's just, just going crazy. Just, Look out the window, man. Look at how beautiful this is. And all these people, man, they don't even notice. They got their blinds down, you know. <laughs> he's yelling and screaming. be <laughs> fine. <laughs> Yeah, he he's more accessible to me than Zappa, but they're both they're both challenging listens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you know, he he had more bluesy stuff, which I dug, you know, and uh, it was a little easier to take, a little easier listening.
are you as a collaborator? I mean, you and Arthur have collaborated together for years. Uh, I imagine that you're a pretty easy guy to work with. Well, I think so. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, it's, uh, yeah, I I think I am. I mean, you know, best collaborator I ever had was Jim Morrison. So when he passed, it was kind of tough, you know, for me to uh, get with with anybody else. Uh, But but then, uh, yeah, Arthur was great. He, for some reason, me and him always got along really good musically. Yeah, I mean, and and what with Jim or with Arthur, was it just is it an openness to ideas? Is it just a fluidity in the exchange? Um, yeah, both, both. I would say. I mean, you know, Jim was uh, he was really great about doing my songs. You know, he 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 uh, he always liked what I did and. And, uh, you know, he would always change it. You know, he would never sing it quite the way I told him to sing it, which was probably a good thing. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mostly it came out pretty good. Uh, Arthur, uh, you know, he's he's a big Doors fan as much as he is a Zappa fan, which was kind of weird. Uh, but he, you know, he just, uh, he know he knows every, every Doors song. And uh, some of the, you know, some of the ones that other people don't know, like on this last album, on our new album, we do uh, one called Yes, the River Knows, which is a really unknown Doors song. But uh, if you listen to the piano part, it's really one of Ray's best piano parts ever. So Arthur transcribed it exactly note for note, and we, uh, we redid it for this album and you know made it a little different but but the piano part is exactly the same uh i wish people would uh would uh listen to that one more that was on the third album is it weird that arthur was such a doors fan too because the doors and zappa are so different yeah exactly (laughs) yeah and arthur is is a complex guy yeah he is he uh you know, for years he worked for Giorgio Moroder. Uh, he 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 was on all that stuff. Uh, you know, that Tom Cruise movie, whatever it was. Um, and he, uh, you know, so that you know he was into all that disco shit. Um, just really a talented musician. He can he can play guitar. He can play bass. He plays keyboards as well and drums. So he, he's one of the most talented musicians I, I've ever met. How are you with criticism? Can you can you take a note? Are you pretty good at, at receiving criticism? Uh, not that good. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, if you write something and you, you like it, you believe in it, then, uh, you know, why would you listen to somebody else? Especially if you've had some success with, uh, you know. I wish I always tell people, and they say, "Oh, that should be different." I say, "Have you ever written a hit single?" <laughs> <laughs> That's a very polite way of saying "fuck off." <laughs> right. 
<laughs> yeah, I oh, I know. Um, in in terms of, uh, and I'm curious about your golf game. When you were learning golf and you were learning the discipline of the sport, did you find that that having being disciplined in guitar was helpful in in terms of applying that to learning golf? Maybe the opposite. Because really? I learned to play golf before I learned to play music. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I was like eight years old, and my dad was a crazy golfer. And uh, so we would go play every uh, weekend. Um, and when I starting when I was maybe eight years old. So, uh, yeah, I learned to play golf really early. And... Uh, I never never thought of it as being uh, related to the guitar, but, but in a way it is. Golf is very much like music uh, in that uh, you have to, when you're playing good, you 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 get out of your own way. You know what I mean? You can't think about it too much. Uh, you know, the more you think, the worse you, it is. So you just have to kind of let it flow which is uh, how you do on, uh, when you're playing music. Uh, when you play your best, you're not, you know, you're not thinking about where the next note is coming from. And if you're playing poorly and you say to yourself, oh, I'm playing so poorly, then that's going to be, that's going to be a collapsing, a collapsing floor, right? That just gets worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, and you know that's the best golfers can can get out of that. You know when they when they are playing bad, then they somehow you start. You know you get the trick is to get into a different mindset. It's very very mental. Do you play golf? I play tennis. Yeah. Um, I'm a tennis player, but but you know it's a it's a very similar discipline. Right. Right. In um, fact, it's even more because you're you're it's so fast that you don't have time to think, right? Right, right. Yeah. Because right, right. you have too much time to think. That's the problem. There's a lot of time, but in tennis, if you say, "Oh, my forehand sucks today," you're going to miss the next ten forehands. I mean, uh, it just gets yeah, in your I head. Used to, I used to play tennis. Yeah, I got Pretty hit good. in the eye one time and fucked my right eye up. Oh, really? God, yeah. someone hit you in the eye. Yeah, I was up at the net, and uh, somebody hit it really hard, and I, I whiffed it, and it hit me right in the eye. Oh, yeah. The guy, the guy that did it was an eye doctor. <laughs> <laughs> That's a weird way to get patients. Yeah. <laughs> so we went down to his office, and uh, so what happened is my the iris, my right iris just doesn't work. It's just stuck in one spot. How long ago was that? That's the thing that makes, oh God, that's probably 30 years ago. Uh, I haven't played tennis since then. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame you. <laughs> but, you know, being, yeah, being a tennis sure. player, being a golfer, being a guitarist, those are all things that can't really be mastered. Um, you know, it's sort of like, which, which is part of the allure. I mean, you know, you could see a golfer finish his first in a tournament and then the next week he's 30th. Um, yeah. So it, is part of the appeal for you in with music and with golf, I mean, those are things you literally cannot, you can't be a master of them. They're almost like it's it's bottomless that way. Is that appealing to you? 
frustrating as well, <laughs> you know, because you always want to be the best. And yeah, you can never be even Tiger Woods. Yeah, I mean, he had a terrible couple of years, but he still hung in there. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I really respect him for doing doing that. He's he's the only guy who ever had a what was it back surgery. Uh, he had a crazy back surgery and nobody's oh, ever yeah. played golf after that so fuse things together and they yeah i i know it's it makes me squeamish to even think about that are you um are you playing golf more than you're playing guitar are you out there every day playing <laughs> no I, I probably play more music than golf but for a while it was uh like that you know back uh in the 80s i guess it was there wasn't much going on with uh, with the with the doors for sure. Yeah. Until the the movie came out and a couple of books. Um. So me and uh, Alice Cooper, we used to play a lot of golf together. But he plays every day. That guy. Yeah, I heard he's great. Yeah, he's pretty good. Um, but when I played with him, he sucked. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, he was terrible. But he was just starting out, I guess, because he he just quit drinking, and so it was like trading one addiction for another. That's right. That's how it works. Yeah. Um, so I, I always say golf is the only good addiction. <laughs> yeah. Have you have you been able to maintain friendships in this business? Is it is that a tricky thing to do, or do you do you like to keep the company of musicians because you understand what you've all been through? You know, there's uh, there's some that. Uh, uh, yeah, I've I've definitely known some for a long time, like Arthur and Sal Marquez, uh, and then there's other guys who I, you know, have disputes with and never speak to them again. Right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, musicians are are a tricky tricky lot. You know, the, some of them are, well, most of them are pretty weird. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I I talked to uh, the singer of Nazareth, and he was telling me that he doesn't like hanging around with musicians because it just you know he likes to talk to fishermen. <laughs> it's like, oh really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, I was into fishing a lot too back in uh, oh back in the seventies, even in the sixties. I had a boat called it the Ship of Fools, and. Uh, Used to go fishing all the time. Uh, no more fishing for you? Nah, not lately. I kind of gave it up. I had when my my uh, my second boat sunk was probably the best day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you sink the boat? Oh, uh, my friend was living on it, and uh, he must have left something opened or something, and it sank in the slip. And you're like, I guess that's over. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, a boat is something that you just keep pouring money into and you don't really get to use it that much. No. Um, you know, I was doing a reading from my book about a year ago and I was changing things while I was reading. And I'm wondering when you listen to your record, can you listen to it and go, that is a finished product i'm good with it or are you can you make peace with it or are you always going ah, i should have done that thing differently uh yeah i mean i i 
you know, especially with the door stuff. I mean, you know, there's some great stuff there. Um, but, you know, when we were playing in those days, we never played the song the same way twice. You know, the, the, what ended up on the record was just what it was that day, you know. So I, I've got all these guys that work for me and, you know, my techs and stuff, and they all, they're all in the Doors tribute bands, right? Right. So they're always complaining. They say, hey, you didn't play that right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I say it's not, that's not whether it's right or wrong. That's just how it is today, you know. Yeah, it's, it's, and every day is different, right? Yeah, and, and, you know, they always want to play it exactly like on the record. And, of course, they never play it quite as good as I played it on the record. Right. <laughs> so, so they're frustrated. What was your take on Ian Asbury, by the way? I, I always liked that guy. I, I thought he was pretty cool. For you guys to play together was cool. Um, yeah, yeah, that was it was. And, uh, you know, our, our old manager, uh, Danny Sugarman, who, who wrote uh, No One Here Gets Out Alive, um, he was trying to get us together for years, you know, after Jim passed away. And, you know, we just didn't want another lead singer that was going to try to be like Jim. And, you know, Ian was, that's how he was. You know, he he was a huge Doors fan and Morrison fan. But uh, so finally, we did get with him uh, around the year 2000. We did this uh, show, uh, VH1 special, and uh, we had all these different singers on there, and he was one of them. And he was really good, you know. So later when Ray and I started playing door stuff again, uh, we got him. Uh, he was our first singer. And he was great. He was, uh, you know, he didn't really sing exactly like Jim. He kind of put his own thing on it. <clears throat> but he had the, he kind of had the right attitude, you know. And he looked right. And, and uh, he was a cool guy. Good singer, right? Yeah, a good singer, but uh, he's kind of almost operatic in a way. The way he sings, you yeah, know, it wasn't it wasn't really it wasn't really like Jim at all, but it worked, you know. I read that uh, Billy Joel said the one person he'd be terrified to meet is Steve Winwood uh, because he's for him is such a great player. Are there is there a guitarist out there that still makes you nervous to think about chatting with, or someone who you just really cannot figure out the magic in in their fingers? Oh, you know, there's quite a few. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was always a big Larry Carlton fan, mm. and uh, never really uh, got to play with him or anything. But I used to go see him play all the time, and. Uh, Skunk Baxter. Actually, we've played a few times together. He's cool. And then, you know, I used to see guys like Wes Montgomery and Joe Pass. Uh, and just, you know, I was amazed by those guys. What, what about a guy like Django Reinhardt when you listen to that, those records? Uh, like, is that. Yeah. God, he's, he was just amazing. Especially only using two fingers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's just as ridiculous, isn't it? Well, in a way, it kind of made his style, you know, because he would slide up and down, and, you know, do stuff that he he couldn't have done with four fingers. So maybe it might have been a good thing for him. Yeah, that's like what you were saying before when you were hurt, you were sort of having to sort of work around it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. 
same, you know, same kind of a thing. Um, I, I'm excited about this record. I I wish they would put it out. <laughs> I don't have to wait till August. But um, <laughs> what what are you thinking? Are are you thinking that the way to do this? I mean, who knows what the world's going to look like then? But maybe for now, the safest way to go is to, to do it live on on online. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Um, that's, that's what I'll have to do for now. Was the plan to hit the road? Um, well, I, I was gonna, you know, the band that, you know, we, most of the guys that we used on that, uh, uh, in the, on the album, uh, I'm not really playing with anymore. And, you know, some of the guys don't get along with each other. And so, you know, we did play that stuff live for a couple of years. And, uh, but it just wasn't working. I was, I was losing money, you know, uh, too much money because, you know, people don't want to hear me play that shit. They want to hear me play the doors, let's face it. So, you know, we'd just be playing clubs and, you know, traveling everywhere and spending too much money to do it. So I kind of gave up doing that uh, before the record came out, you know, a couple of years ago, really. Um, I do have this other band now that I've been playing jazz with. Uh, we call it the New Experience. And uh, so we, you know, we've been playing a couple of the songs uh, in that band. And uh, we'll probably learn some more. And... Uh, Probably, like you say, do some uh, some televised type gigs. Did you ever feel claustrophobic with your fan base, where they just want door stuff from you, where you, they won't allow you, as fans, to sort of grow past it? I mean, it's you know, it's sort of it's sort of a uh, you know, it's a catch twenty two because it's a pleasant a pleasant yeah leg. exactly yeah no I've I've always felt that way <laughs> ever since uh, you know after. After Jim died, and then we did two albums as the Doors, uh, you know, three of us. But after that, I just quit playing Doors songs for like twenty years. I never played a Doors song. But then, uh, you know, I started hanging around with these Doors tribute guys and seeing how much fun they were having. Uh, so little by little, I, I would put more. Doors and songs in my set, and uh, you know, can't get away from it. <laughs> but the, no. thing, the good thing is, they still they still are fun to play, and uh, you know, I'm just glad the, the songs are are so good. Yeah, and it's a you know, pleasant problem to have. It's a it's a hell of a legacy. But I would imagine creatively, people people have a hard time letting you stretch out your wings and go past yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I'm not complaining. No, <laughs> no. You, you could sink a couple more boats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm excited about this record. I, I love your playing. And I think that, uh, you know, it, it's a challenging time. But I think once it comes out and people get a hold of it, they're going to love it because it's it's a remarkable work. Well, I hope so. I mean, they put that one single out, the, uh, the Drift. Um and uh it got on the top of the of the Spotify uh chart yeah, in a, in about a week. So uh that's promising. How'd that feel? That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even think that was one of the more uh more accessible tunes, but 
people liked it. People liked it a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's another one uh, called uh, Slide Home, which is uh, you can see on the uh, web on my website, which uh, is pretty cool too. Well, I think that uh, you know, hopefully, a whole new audience in addition to the other one, and uh, you know, it's it's very it's a very cool project, and I I love it. I love what I've heard. Well, that's great, man. Thanks. You yeah, know, it's always been my dream to have an instrumental hit. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, uh, you know, something like uh, oh, uh, you know, one of those surf songs or something like that. And uh, actually, I've been recording lately. I've been doing a uh, at my studio. I've been doing an instrumental reggae album, and uh, that's been pretty cool. So that'll probably be my next record. How did that come about? Well, uh, my buddy Phil Chen, who's uh, from Jamaica, he's uh, he's been in in and out of my bands for years, and uh, he uh, he came down with uh, mesothelioma, uh, and so we we wanted to do something to make him feel better. So he you know he loves playing reggae, so uh, that's kind of how that started. You know, those reggae players from Jamaica, there's some really good guitar players from the 60s that are on those those early... Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Right? There's this uh, one guy, Ernest Ernest Wranglin. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. He 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 really pioneered that, that style, you know, the reggae style. But he can also play like, like Wes Montgomery shit. He's amazing. How do you like playing reggae, by the way? I love it. I love it. Yeah. That's your your really your first foray into that, or had you ever messed around with it over the years? Well, uh, you know, when I first met Phil was back in and when we were in London. Um, me and John Densmore had started this band called the Butts Band, and that, that was in London. We had moved over there. All of us moved there, thinking. Oh, maybe we'll find a lead singer over here. But then Ray got pissed off and left and went back home. So John and I were over there, and uh, we started this band called the Butts Band. And uh, so Phil Phil Chen was like the bass player in London at the time. He did all the sessions and stuff, and he uh, so he he joined up with us. And uh, like I said, he's from Jamaica. And so he really taught us about reggae. In fact, we went to Jamaica and recorded part of the album down there. Um, and that was really cool to to be in Kingston. And, uh, and uh, you yeah, know, we met Jimmy Cliff and all this stuff. And uh, we, we recorded a dynamic sound, you know, where they did all the Whalers albums and stuff. So, uh, yeah, that was in the early uh, 70s. So I've been into reggae uh, for a long time. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Jimmy Cliff, a nice guy? Uh, He seemed okay. You know, I've heard some weird things about him, but (laughs) he he was nice to me. Yeah. I don't know why those reggae guys don't get the credit when you have conversations about great players. I just don't know what that is because there's such such great guitar players out of that. Oh, I know. And you know the bass players, they're they're the real stars of, of reggae. You know they uh, 
it's almost like lead bass on some of those songs, you know? And they push that bass way up, you know, in the front. And especially when they play live, they've got these huge banks of speakers. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, those those bass players have such dexterity, you can hear it. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like they're playing a lead bass. Um, well, I can't wait for that record. That sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be good. Yeah. Um, well, I, look, I appreciate your time. I, I, it, it's nice of you to chat with me this long. I, I'm, I'm really grateful that you took the time to do it. Oh, hey, no problem. Oops, uh, yeah, I got another one I got to do right now, as a matter of fact. All right, go for it. (laughs) Oh, there you go. Hey, thanks, buddy. All right. Thanks, man. Golf, tennis, and reggae. (laughs) That was not your normal... Robbie Krieger interview. I don't think. I think we broke some new ground. Very cool to talk to Robbie. I enjoyed that conversation quite a bit. You're going to love his new album. The Ritual Begins at Sundown. It's out now, and you should own it. Digitally, or on vinyl, or both. RobbieKrieger.com will get you all the information you need to purchase it in any format that makes you comfortable. Uh, RobbieKrieger.com, R-O-B-B-Y, by the way. R-O-B-B-I-E, Krieger.com. I think that's uh, some kind of realtor in La Jolla. Don't buy a house in La Jolla. Buy Robbie Krieger's new album. Or buy the house in La Jolla if you can afford it. Go for it and uh, play Robbie Krieger's album loud in your new house. AlexGreenOnline.com will get you all the information you need to know about me. Uh, of course, I pretty much say everything here, but if you want to read it, uh, go to that website. I would appreciate it. Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe, tell a friend, leave us a rating. I know, it sounds like a ton of work, but it's not. It's the push of a button or two, and uh, maybe just mention it to your friend at a party. Okay? (laughs) All right. Uh, Yeah, it's a lot of work putting a party together just to tell someone about my podcast. So go to a party that you're already invited to. Of course... In the age of coronavirus, that's all via Zoom. It's getting complicated. You know what? Just tell a friend in any way, shape, or form you see fit. You can follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor or follow me on Instagram at Embers Podcast or just email me editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Who do you want back on the show? Who do you want me to get on the show uh, for the first time? Let me know and I will track them down with a microphone and uh, (laughs) I was going to say some chloroform, but I don't think that's correct. That's terrible. Not going to do that. We're just going to ask politely. And if they say no, uh, we'll retreat from the building quietly. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) what a weird way to end the show. Let's take a longer listen to What Was That by Robbie Krieger. It's the opening track from The Ritual Begins at Sundown. Enjoy it. And thank you, as always, for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Bombshell Radio.